Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anyone here for the first time tonight? Welcome to all of you showing up for the first time. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time tonight. I've been teaching this Monday night class here on the west side of Los Angeles for about 17 years now, every Monday night. Some of you have been coming for a long time. Some of you are newer to the community. And a big part of my intention behind our meditation center and uh, teaching Buddhism is to help people develop community. It's one of the refuges. There's three refuges in Buddha. There's taking refuge in your own ability to be fully awake, what we call Buddha, awakened. Taking refuge in your ability to uh, know what is true about reality and live in harmony with it, refuge in the Dharma. And then refuge in Sangha, in community, the, that we need each other. And Buddhism is such a strange practice where you're on your own. You've got to do it yourself. That I'm as the teacher. There's no teachers that can do it for you. Everybody has to do all of the work themselves. It's a non-theistic path. There's no uh, you know, external sources that give us grace or blessing or anything like that from a Buddhist perspective. It's humanist psychology. So you have to do it all yourself, but you can't do it alone. We need each other to support, to encourage, to confront, to uh, intervene at times, to practice conflict with. We need each other. And it's kind of hard to build community during silent meditation. So I like to start by asking you to introduce yourself to some of the people in the room you don't know yet. It's a little weird if you're new and can feel a little churchy or culty or something, but the intention behind it is to connect, is to meet each other. Uh, and tonight's topic is intention, the second factor of the Eightfold Path. So introduce yourself to some people. At home, I'll, I'll open up these Zoom rooms, breakout rooms on Zoom, and you can talk to each other in there. And so when I say intention, and just let your, like, what's your mind? What is your intention for your life? <laughs> intention also, in the Buddhist perspective, means aim, goal, direction. What is your aim? What is your goal? What is your direction? How far do you want to take this meditation thing? I know I asked this a few weeks ago. How enlightened do you want to get? Do you think you can get? Uh, you know, some people come to meditation, especially these days, where their intention is stress reduction. I just want to be a little bit more mindful and a little less stressed out. And, and I'm going to continue to totally take refuge in materialism and sensuality and seeking a, you know, external source of happiness, but hopefully meditation will help me be more successful in my material aims, my sensual goals. The Buddhist intention practice is total freedom, happiness, that's not dependent on external sources. 
no matter what's happening in our life, whether success or failure or abundance or lack, pleasant or unpleasant, freedom. That's what the Buddha taught. He said it's possible for us to get free in the midst of whatever reality we're inhabiting, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So what's your intention? Talk to some people around you about your goal, your aim, where do you want to take this meditation Buddhist business? And I'll open the breakout rooms for you guys at home. We will now have a period of meditation for about 30 minutes. So find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed. As you're ready, allow your eyes to be closed, establish a posture that feels sustainable. Relax any tension that you can relax. Soften your brow, your eyes, your jaw. Allow the upright body to be supported by the chair or cushion. Enjoy the music. Establishing the intention to be kind, to be patient, to be accepting. Whatever your goal is, kindness will help. Bringing awareness into the present time experience of sitting and breathing. Kind awareness towards whatever your mind is doing, whatever emotions or sensations. Accepting ourselves just as we are in this moment. Right now, it's like this. These sensations, emotions, thoughts, sounds. Meditation is not about changing what's happening. It's about seeing clearly, understanding the impermanent nature of what's happening. Allow the breath to be 
the anchoring experience to the present time. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. When you get involved in a thought in the mind, a plan, a memory, a fantasy, no, this is a thought. This is the mind thinking. Choosing to come back to the breath, disengaging from the thinking mind, let it be in the background as much as you can. Always come back to accepting this moment just as it is, to softening the jaw, the shoulders, the belly.
If you're new to this kind of meditation, keep bringing your attention back to the breath, connecting, sustaining as much as you can, present time awareness of the breath coming and going. Disengaging from the mind, learning to break our addiction to thinking, to disengage from the plans and memories, to engage in the present sensory experience of sitting and breathing. And if you've been practicing for some time, you're already aware that the Buddha's instructions continue inviting us to be inclusive of our whole being, not just the breath, but the whole body. The body that includes the sense doors of hearing and seeing, smelling and tasting. The body that includes a mind, a brain, a heart, emotions. This human condition, this human experience. as we become more and more aware of our heart, our mind, our body, we investigate the feeling tone, how we are perceiving these thoughts that are coming and going, these sensations or emotions, acknowledging that which is pleasant, that which feels unpleasant, painful, difficult. And also giving our attention to the neutral sensations, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. As you observe your heart and mind, is there anything neutral? Or does every thought come with a feeling of pleasant or unpleasant? See for yourself.
mindfulness reveals what's happening moment to moment, thoughts and sensations. And how they feel, what's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And we begin to see directly how we create our suffering based on how we relate to what's happening. Our reactive tendency to pain, of fear, of anger, creates a level of suffering on top of the pain. Our reactive tendency towards pleasure of clinging, of craving, attachment, creating that level of suffering on top of what was pleasant. Seeing how often when things are neutral, we feel bored and we follow the cravings, the fantasy of some future happiness. rather than accepting this moment just as it is. Perhaps even learning to enjoy the neutrality, the absence of pleasure and pain. For the last few minutes, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn towards the practice of loving kindness, saying to yourself in your own heart and mind, may I be at ease, meaning may we learn to be at ease with ourselves just as we are, with this mind, this body, this heart. May we learn to be at ease in this world, just as it is. May I be at ease.
may I experience contentment, happiness, a sense of well-being with life just as it is, not it needing it to be some other way. Saying to yourself, may I be free from all of this self-created suffering, the clinging, craving, resentment. May I be free. In our own heart saying, may I be free from suffering. May I do what needs to be done. To free myself. And then acknowledging that you are saying to yourself, I am doing what needs to be done. This meditative training that leads to freedom. And extending these same wishes to each other, thinking of the people you were talking to tonight in the small group, reflecting on how just like me, you wish to be happy, you wish to be at ease, you wish to be free. Extending these well wishes, goodwill, loving kindness to the Sangha. May you be happy, just as you are. May you be at ease. May you be free from suffering. Extending this wish outward in all directions, including all of your loved ones, friends, family, associates, communities, colleagues, with love, with kindness, with appreciation, opening to the 10,000 sorrows with compassion, to the 10,000 joys with appreciation. And a general attitude of kindness that wishes for all beings to be at ease. Even our enemies, even the difficult 
people in the world. May all beings be at ease. As you're ready, bringing your attention back to the room. Continuing with the uh, Buddhism 101 that I started in January, the life of the Buddha, we went through that um, uh, the Buddha was a person born about 2,600 years ago or so, who was born into abundance and wealth and, and, uh, and rejected it and went out to found that um, the happiness that he was seeking was not found in material or sensual experience and went out to look for a spiritual solution. Spent some years practicing yogic, Brahmanic meditation techniques, some years practicing asceticism, extreme renunciation, not finding what he was looking for with the gurus of his time, rejecting them, the concentration-based meditations that they were teaching him. Discovering mindfulness and mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental awareness leading to the ability to meet the unpleasant experiences in life with acceptance and compassion and removing all of that suffering that we normally bring to our pain. We normally bring, make pain worse by hating it and rejecting it and resenting it and fearing it. And he said, oh, mindfulness is the key. When I'm mindful of the impermanent, unpleasant experience, I don't suffer about it anymore. I just meet it with friendliness and 
compassion and sounds so simple, right? Just be mindful of your pain and you won't suffer anymore. But that was a, a huge part of his experience. Likewise with pleasure, the impermanent nature of pleasure, seeing, oh, I cling, I, I create my suffering based on attachment, craving, trying to control rather than accepting the transient nature of pleasure. Having that experience under the Bodhi tree of being attacked by his own mind, the self-centered unworthiness of the human condition, that part of his mind, of all of ours mind that says, you can't do this. You can't be totally free. You're not worthy of this. You, uh, one of the things his mind said to him on the verge of enlightenment was, who do you think you are? Just like your mind sometimes says that to you. Who do you think you are? And he had the, the final awakening, what we call nirvana, total freedom from suffering based in a mindful relationship to pleasure and pain and no longer believing the delusional thoughts that arise in his mind, in the human mind. Changing his relationship to what he called Mara. And Mara didn't go away. Mara is afflictive emotions, doubt and fear and lust and anger and all the stuff we're usually suffering about. He said, it's not gone. I just don't believe it anymore. Now, when it arises, I say, I see you. I relate to that unpleasant thought, that self-centered fear is something I have a relationship with rather than I believe is me. So this awakening, and he said, okay, we figured it out. I'm going to go teach my friends. What do you do with it? What do you, when you get free, what do you do? You share it. You say, okay, I'll be of service. Help others who also want to meditate, want to awaken, want to realize that materialism is a dead end. You can't buy happiness. You can get all everything you want, <laughs> and it won't work. So you find some people who also understand that. And he broke it down and we're at the second factor. You know, this is just a review. You know, he said, suffering is normal. Everyone is suffering on some level or another. It just goes with incarnation. It's not your fault. It's not, you're not a failure. <laughs> you're just a person, you're human. There is a suffering uh, born into this, nervous system, this self-centered mind, this craving, repetitive craving, normal. The cause is, you know, the cause of that suffering is this survival instinct that we're born with. We crave for pleasure. We hate pain. We take everything personal. I, me, mine. And it makes life stressful and almost unbearable at times. So many of us became addicts trying to manage, control, manipulate, medicate our minds, our bodies, our pain. And he says, although that's true and is the normal human condition, freedom is possible. He said, I wouldn't teach it if I didn't know it was true. This is not a philosophy. This is not a um, 
you know, it's not, not some sort of make-believe. He's like, I'm, I'm only going to share with you what I've directly experienced. And I know that since I've directly experienced it, so can you. Really just sharing his personal experience with his friends. Said first noble truth. There's suffering. There's a cause of suffering. The end of suffering is possible. I, I'm, I'm, I'm living it. And it's not the end of pain. And it's not the end of impermanence. And it's not everyone's going to get along. <laughs> it's not everything's going to be pleasant all of the time. It's not everything's going to be blissful. It's just we don't have to suffer about what's happening, no matter what's happening. And then he said, here's, here's what I did, and here's what anyone can do, the eightfold path. And last week, we talked about the first thing, the first factor of the path. And again, reminder for anybody's coming for the first time tonight, the eightfold path is not linear. I'm going to teach it in a, you know, over this eight-week period as one, two. Last week, we did one. This week, we're doing two. But it's not how it works. You don't work the eightfold path like you work the 12 steps. It's not like that. Like you do the first step and then you do the second step and then you do the, you don't do them in order like that. It's more the image that works best is a eight spoked wheel. And these spokes, it's not like number one and then number two, it's just eight spokes and it's a wheel. It's the wheel of life, of our existence. It's constantly turning. And maybe it's sort of what's the most important spoke is the one that's like making contact right there <laughs> and it's constantly turning. So all eight spokes are constantly making contact. And as a reminder, it's understanding and intention, communication and action, um, livelihood, effort, mindfulness and um, concentration. And so it's a, a whole, it's our whole life, these eight aspects of everything in our life. But last week we got into the first factor, which is understanding. And a huge part of it connected with today, the second um, factor, which is intention. Both of them are around, we call them wisdom, panya wisdom, um, and a primary, a core part of what he's saying we have to understand is karma is that we live in a universe, we live in a world based on causes and conditions. Based on our happiness or unhappiness depends on how we act. And also, which means react, right? So it's, there's that, that basic thing. And this is so liberating when you get it, which is it's not what's happening. It's how you're reacting to what's happening. We're, for whatever reason, don't you usually blame your unhappiness on what's happening in your life? It's always like somebody else's fault, something, it's the world's fault. It's, or even if maybe it's you blame yourself. It's my, you know, it's because I have to live with this mind. That's why I'm unhappy. It's my fault. But this action, this reaction, this, ability to change our relationship, including to our own mind. It's not your mind's fault that you're unhappy. <laughs> it's how you're relating to your mind. And this idea that I can't be happy until my mind starts behaving with some dignity, <laughs> with some level of 
wisdom. We can't postpone our freedom, our happiness, our well-being until your mind stops judging and craving and comparing and lusting and fearing. And, you know, you have your list of what your mind does that hurts you. Part of what Buddhism is teaching us is that, unfortunately, it's not going to stop. It's going to decrease a lot. I mean, the good, I don't, I don't want to sound like it's going to be this bad forever. Uh, my own subjective experience is that, um, you know, 30 something years into practice, my mind still judges and compares and lusts and fears. And, but I suffer like about 10%. I take it as about 10% as much as I used to. I used to suffer about what I, my mind was doing all of the time. And my, my mind was telling me to take drugs and to commit crimes and hurt myself and hurt others. And I just obeyed it for the first half of my life. And I suffered. And then meditation and recovery and service and all of the principles that we have and on the Eightfold Path start to break our addiction to the mind and show us it's not what my mind's doing. It's how I'm relating to it. It's not that I there's lust arising or there's fear arising or there's, it's, am I being mindful of that's an impermanent thought arising that I don't have to obey. That's just fear. That's just craving. That's just murderous rage. <laughs> it's just coming and it'll arise and it'll pass. And I don't have to incarnate as it. You know, there, last week we talked a little bit about um, the eight, the, the, the dependent origination uh, as multiple lives, as like the, your incarnation. There's a whole perspective that's in the suttas and, and, you know, certainly a lot of the Western psychologists have really, that maybe reincarnation isn't so much lifetime to lifetime as it is moment to moment. Maybe it is lifetime to lifetime. Maybe not, but moment to moment right now, are you so identified with your thoughts and your feelings and your body and your emotions that you are incarnating as this emotion? I am lonely, right? And, and how I am afraid. I am, anytime we do that sort of I am and really believe it, not in a sort of general sort of convention of speaking to each other. We still have to use I am when somebody says, how are you? You have to say, I am self-centered. <laughs> I am afraid. I am whatever it is. You still have to answer on a relative level. But the wisdom that comes from the meditative practice starts to realize that's not who I am. I'm not, you know, Sometimes I freeze a little bit sometimes when people ask me how I am. So I'm like, I know I'm supposed to answer. I'm supposed to say I'm good. I'm fine. I'm wonderful. But it's so, you can't answer that question. I wish we would stop asking each other. I mean, I'm guilty of it too. Because it's such a big question. If you really, maybe I'm just get too intellectual and take it too spiritual and be like, how am I? Well, I have an unpleasant sensation in my chest now that you asked me. I was, I was fine a minute ago. 
now I feel nervous. I'm like, I have to please you by saying good. And so, you know, unpacking how much the, that sort of, oh, I'm now I'm incarnating as a minute ago, I was fine, totally free. But now the self-consciousness, now I'm taking birth as a self in relationship to you. A little bit of a tangent, but what I want to talk about is karma and intention. But... I think that this is very important because don't, sometimes you think of karma as like the external events, how you respond to what's happening in your life, how you respond to what's happening in the world. But I think what, one of the reasons I went on this tangent is that I want everyone to understand it's also how you respond to your internal life, how you respond to what your mind is doing, what your body is feeling is also karma, not just cash register honesty or, you know, external generosity or kindness to someone else. But are you being kind to yourself? Are you being generous? Are you being loving? Are you being forgiving to your mind that's not being very kind? Can you meet the unkind mind with kindness? Can you meet the afraid, angry Emotion with forgiveness. The action of responding to what's happening, both internal and external, is how we get free. Mindfulness is the key because without mindfulness, you don't even know what the fuck is happening in your mind. You're not even really, not even totally aware of the process that's unfolding without mindfulness. You're just living a life of reactivity. Maybe that's one of the best um, ways to, to look at, am I reacting or am I responding? Reactive is that uh, on the um, dependent origination that we were talking about last week, when something pleasant happens, we react with clinging. That's the norm. I like it. I want to keep it. Craving, clinging, aversion, unpleasant, hate it. Get out of here. Reaction is without mindfulness. We just react to the stimuli. With mindfulness, there's a pause. There's an ability to start responding to both the internal and external. And it's this response, reaction or response, it's action that creates our karma. All karma is created based on our intentional actions, reactions, responses. The Buddha, um, this, this is the shortest of all of the, in this little um, teaching on the Eightfold Path, it's the shortest chapter. There's only one page, really, a page and a quarter. Um, because all the Buddha said here was, what is, uh, uh, it's translated as thought here, right? Thought, right intention, right aim. He said, developing a mind that is free from lust, responding with lust, which is also, I think the word here is uh, nekakama, 
sankapa, which means, kama means uh, sense pleasure, responding with craving and clinging to wanting it to be pleasant. I want to feel good all of the time. Uh, all of the time, I want it to be pleasant. And training your mind to accept it's not going to be pleasant all of the time. It's just an impossible, it's a, it's a dead end to think that life's going to be pleasant all of the time. So free from that lusting, clinging, craving. And it's not that you can stop your mind completely from doing that, but stop believing it. When your mind says, I would be happy if. How many times a day does it say that? And even, I mean, there's that very interesting physical awareness practice of why do you move your body at all? Like right now, sit totally still. And you have to breathe. And how, how long until you have to blink? Because it's unpleasant. And you blink because there's this automatic. And then pretty soon you're like, well, I'd be happier if I could just move my shoulders a little bit. It's a little unpleasant sitting still, but you know, really avoiding that unpleasantness feels better. And now I might need a drink. That would feel more pleasant. Go take a drink. The cotton mouth's unpleasant. And the more we really start to investigate, like everything that I do is driven by, I'd like to avoid that and make it more pleasant, including blinking and swallowing and breathing. And then it's everything else, every movement of the body. Free from ill will and free from cruelty. This is called right thought. Free from lust, ill will, and cruelty, which yields um, worldly fruits and brings good results, karma when we can start having intentions that are not based in craving, not based in anger and ill will, and, uh, but the opposite, based in generosity, based in kindness, based in love, based in compassion, based in non-clinging rather than I, me, mine, based on how can I support others? How can I be generous? How can I be a good friend, a good partner? a good parent, a good whatever role you're currently playing. Good as in patient and tolerant and supportive and all karma based on our intentional actions and reactions. There's that Western saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, which I think comes from, but not, not Buddhist at all, <laughs> but I think it comes from that, how often do we lie and say, like, that wasn't my intention. I wasn't trying to hurt you. I was just trying to avoid my own pain. I was shooting heroin or smoking crack, or drinking, or whatever it was. My intention wasn't to, well, it wasn't a good intention. I wasn't trying to care for you as I was ignoring you and 
lying and stealing and doing whatever I did in, in my addiction. Really, again, connected with mindfulness, um, he says, in understanding wrong thought as wrong and right thought as right, one practices understanding the first factor. In making efforts to overcome the unskillful thoughts and to arouse wise thought, one practices right effort, the sixth factor. Get the image of the wheel. So we're talking about the second base and it's connected with the first, it's connected with the sixth. While dwelling with attentive mind in possession of the right thought, one practices mindfulness, the seventh factor. Hence, there are three things that accompany and follow upon right thought or right intention, namely understanding, effort, and mindfulness. So all four of these, right? So this is half of the path. And saying in order to do this part, the second part, you have to be doing these other three. All four of these are connected. And mindfulness is connected to every other aspect of the wheel. You have to be mindful to do any. It's one of the reasons why in the West, mindfulness has become so easily secularized and di disengaged from the full Buddhist path because it is the key to changing our actions, to changing our intentions, our relationship to our mind. So all of our intentional actions, I heard a Dharma talk a couple years ago, and I was surprised to hear this. And they were saying that it was in the suttas, I don't know where it is, that it was an early teaching from the Buddha. He said that really intention is so much the key that there was an example of somebody whose intention was to go out and kill an animal, to go hunting. And they were uh, aiming an arrow at a deer but they missed it. And their intention was, I'm going to kill that living being over there, but they missed it. And it hit another deer that it wasn't aiming at. They hit and they killed another deer. And the example was no karma because it was not your, your intention was very clearly pointed at, I'm going to harm you, but I missed you. And I harmed you. And I don't get the karma from harming you because it wasn't my intention which I was like, whoa, that doesn't make sense because you didn't have a good, you weren't going into the situation with good intentions. You were going to murder and you murdered. But it was an example that was trying to say like, actually what you're pointing at is very important. What your intention is, is very important. I would argue that there's still karma in accidentally murdering when you have the intention to murder. If you have no intention to murder, you know, you're driving down the road and a deer jumps in front of your car. I don't think you get the karma of murdering the deer because you weren't trying to kill a deer. You were trying to drive down the road. But when you go out with your machine gun, bow and arrow, whatever it is, and say, I'm going to go kill some Bambies today. I'm going to go murder Bambi. But you miss Bambi and you get her mom. So this is all about karma. 
And then I like to think about there's sometimes, I don't know if, how many of you have been a little confused by reading some Zen literature. <laughs> and the kind of Buddhist, like, there's no goal. You heard that? In meditation, there should be no goal. There should be no aspiration. Just sit. Zazen. Without any intention of enlightenment, just sit. Sitting is enlightenment. You're already enlightened. You don't need to strive for enlightenment. And that can like mess you up because you're like, well, but I don't feel enlightened. And I would like to be. But now they're telling me I'm not even allowed to want to be. I can't have the goal of making progress on the path of becoming less attached, more awake. Just realize it here and now. And this can be confusing when you hear that. And I'm sure there's a good explanation of it. I don't know what that good explanation is, but I'm sure there is one. But the Buddha's teaching was there's a goal. There's suffering. There's a cause of suffering. The goal is to end suffering. That's what we're doing here. Very much with an aim, with an intention. You know, for those of us in recovery, the, the, the intention to recover, to stay sober, to stay free, and to go beyond just physical abstinence and to go to spiritual freedom. to a freedom where we can inhabit our reality no matter what's happening, to train the mind and the heart so thoroughly that we learn to respond not with hatred and ill will and craving and clinging and lust, but with acceptance and forgiveness. Our intention is to meet each other, meet this world with accepting it's like this, it's just the way it is. And it's calling for all kinds of forgiveness and all kinds of love and all kinds of compassion because it's really unpleasant. It's really confused. It's a world of ignorance and greed and hatred and war and racism and sexism and you know oppression after oppression after oppression. So it's not this kind of like, well, just it's, you know, just accept it, but accept it with intentionally responding, acting, responding in a way that's not only going to free ourselves, and this is where for sure we have to take the Dharma beyond are you suffering to like end suffering in your own heart as much as you can, but also help others, be generous, be loving, be of service, create a positive change, the bodhisattva ethic. And maybe not the full Mahayana Bodhisattva ethic that says postpone your happiness until everyone's happy. That might be taking it a little too far. Get as free as you can here and now and use your life's energy to help others, to pull them up, to serve, to support, to encourage. Just as the Buddha did, he got enlightened he spent the next 40 years giving the teachings. And not only teaching people meditation and this eightfold path, but also speaking out against racism, against sexism, against war, against 
he was also socially and politically engaged against ignorance, against confusion, against the stream. And so there is a place for social and political, environmental engagement, not just self-help. I'm here to meditate for my own well-being. Yes, I'm here to meditate for my own well-being. And knowing how deeply uh, powerful actually we are, we have so much effect on each other and we can help each other so much with our life's energy. And our healing, our recovery, our awakening is having ripple effects in our lives. Just not being lost in lust and greed and, and hatred in itself is a whole bunch of people around you that are already relieved. And then as you become more kind and more loving and more generous, they feel it. And there's a place in the teachings where the Buddha says, you know, we talk a lot about taking refuge, take refuge in your own, as I said in the beginning, your, your own awakening, the Dharma, the Sangha, take refuge in each other. There's a place in the teachings where the Buddha says, if you practice this thoroughly, and you have loving kindness for all living beings and compassion for all living beings and appreciation and equanimity, you will become a refuge. That the goal isn't just, I want to get free. I want to help others. And it's not sort of like, I'm going to put everyone else a kind of martyr, codependent bodhisattva. But uh, genuinely, first, you know, it's the old... Um, what do they say when you're in the airplane, the masks? Put on your own mask first, because you're not going to be able to help anybody when you can't breathe. So this is really the, the spirit of the Dharma, which is put on your own mask. And as soon as it's on, start helping each other, right? Rather than like, fuck you all, I'm putting on my mask. I got it on. I'm good. Y'all are on your own. Or not putting it on and being like, I'm going to help everyone else first. And then you die because you didn't take care of your own basic needs. <laughs> so you get to decide what your intention is in the big picture. How free do you want to be? And... This is a huge part of our mindfulness practice. Why am I, what's my intention behind what I'm saying right now? What's my intention behind what I'm, how I'm reacting to my own mind? How often are you reacting to your mind with anger, with ill will, with judgment, with fear? A reaction to, you know what, fuck you, to yourself. And starting to replace that with, may I be at ease with myself? May I be friendly to myself? May I uh, forgive my con own confused mind? And the more we do it internally, the easier my experience is, then it gets easier to deal with other people's confused minds. And all of the <laughs> ignorance and oppression that that confusion manifests as in the world. So I'll leave it there for tonight. Any questions or comments or clarifications from at home or uh, in the room? No.
Yeah, please, Jamie. How does intention work for distinguishing absolute and conventional nature of reality? What do you mean by that? Like, do, does Theravadans work with absolute conventional nature? Like a mind? Because like my intention could be to help others conventionally, but like then if I get all strung out about like how absolute having an intention is. Yeah. So like, I was wondering if that works like that or I mean, a lot of this, as you know, as I'm saying tonight, a lot of it is happening on a um, relative level on how you're relating to each other, how you're responding, how you're acting, how you're speaking. All of our karma is on a sort of relative, conventional interaction, relational. And um, and there probably is there's a there's a piece there in the. Um, where he talks, I think this is what you're asking about, where he says there's mundane and super mundane at levels. And the, the mundane level is just free from lust, ill will and cruelty. But um, the super mundane, he says, whatever there is thinking, considering, reasoning, thought and application, the mind being holy, being turned away from the world, conjoined with the path, the holy path being pursued, these verbal operations of the mind's wise thought, intentional wisdom, using the mind to think, like when we're doing forgiveness, when we're doing loving kindness, that that's not just like a mundane uh, response, but it's, it's training the mind to be on this different level, super higher level, super mundane thought, which is not of the world. It's not about what, how, what am I getting out of it? It's, it's, it's much more, it's an elevated training of the mind. And it's conjoined with the path. When we're using the mind, not to think about our material or sensual desires, but about where am I with the eightfold path? Am I, am I being mindful? Am I concentrated? Am I being kind? Am I being loving? Am I being forgiving? Am I being generous? Using the mind to think about the path? Am I understanding the impersonal nature of what's happening here? Is the way that it's referred to here. I don't know if that's totally connected with what you're asking, but yeah. Russ, go ahead. Uh, just related to what Jamie said, um, what about mixed intentions, mixed motives, where it's not absolutely pure at all? I think uh, in my case, I feel I always have mixed intentions. Uh, the classic example would be you want to be of service, but you also want to be loved because of that. You know, you want some love back, or you want to have the prestige of being known as someone like the joke, like I'm the most modest person on earth, you know. There's probably not any such thing as a hundred percent altruistic action until we're enlightened. So I think sometimes we can put that like I'm supposed to be selfless, selfless service. You've heard that, right? You've saw the bumper sticker, you know, do random acts of kindness, you know, right? And so, but of course, there's a feeling of like, I like the way it feels when I'm kind, when I'm generous, I get something out of it. And I like it when people see me as a kind, generous, loving person. It, you know, what it feels good, you know, nothing. First of all, there's nothing wrong with, feeling good and liking the way that it feels when people see you as a wise person. 
That's a wholesome emotion to have. Of course, you know, we can, the ego can get too identified with being seen any certain way. You know, it's okay to enjoy being seen as good as long as you can also tolerate the criticism and the blame and the moments when you're not seen as good at all. So it's, it's that praise and blame teaching from the Buddha. Nothing wrong with praise, enjoy it. But also when it's time for blame, enjoy it. <laughs> Don't suffer about that either. We have to be able to do both if we're addicted to praise, dead end. But nothing wrong with praise when that's the appropriate, you know. So I don't know about mixed. If our motivations can truly be mixed, then our karma is mixed. You know, so you, I don't know how to, if it's 60-40, then you only get 40% of the karma, right? If it's 90-10, then you get, so it's not, it doesn't have to be black or white. It doesn't have to be all or none. Mixed is fine, but then the reaction is going to be, the response, the karmic fruition is also going to be mixed if it's truly mixed in that way. I don't totally know the answer to this. I have some sense that some scholarly Buddhists would say there's a core intention in there and that it's the core intention that the karma is based on. Even though there's maybe some surrounding mixture, there's a core intention. I don't know them. Michael, last question online. It's actually more of a reflection um, when you brought up um, don't incarnate as um, uh, a negative emotion like aversion or or by anything unskillful, like using equanimity to kind of um, to pause and, and, and act skillfully. And some of the teachers in the lineage um, always use, you know, the gates of the deathless are open now. So when you unpack it that way, because I've always been confused about that, okay, because I think I go with the construct, you know, that Roman Catholic, you know, you die and then you go to heaven and all that. But with Buddhism, I, I think there's the whole rebirth thing, you know, and you brought up something that was interesting is, you know, in, incarnating in different ways, like, like every day or every moment. So it took confusion away from that for me that you can, um, you know, by not incarnating as something in the moment and skillfully working through it and, and, and being equanimous, um, that's, I guess that may, it makes more sense to me now when I hear the gates of the deathless are open and, you know, Nevada is right now and, you know, don't strive and don't become just abide. So I'm, I'm grateful for that because it, it, it definitely opened up some type of insight. Great. Thanks. Nice to see you. Good to see everybody. Um, all of this is for your consideration. It's like the Grammys or something. It's for your consideration. <laughs> you get to decide what you believe, what makes sense to you. You get to decide how much it resonates. And the, the big encouragement with Buddhism is to try it and really, you know, meditate every day and see how it changes your relationship to your mind. See what happens when you apply it, long-term effect, rather than trying to like intellectualize our way of like, does, do I agree with all of this? 
keep just check it out for you know sit every day and see what happens for you know give it a like a decade or so and then decide whether it works <laughs> and then decide oh shit i was on the wrong path <laughs> should have just stuck with the possibility of changing minds of people who were thousands of miles away and wanted to destroy a nation, a country. Is there any way you can do that? From the Buddhist perspective, the only mind you can change is your own. And sometimes when we change our own mind, it inspires others to change theirs. But there's very little. Um, power over other people. Even the, the Buddha, who was, you know, this wonderfully wise being, you know, there was all these wars going on in his lifetime. His whole family uh, ended up getting wiped out in a, in a war. And he didn't have the power to stop or to change anybody else's mind. And he was quite clear about that. He would change somebody's mind to um, save thousands of other lives. Doesn't seem to be possible from the Buddhist perspective. It doesn't seem to be possible. I mean, then it, then it gets a whole nother question when we're talking about karma of, um, is it worth killing that person to save lots of lives? And there's lots of theoretical conversations about morality and ethics. And is it more ethical to kill one person to save millions? Um, is, or we just still have the karma of killing that person. I was one time uh, meeting with a Buddhist monk and we were talking about this and he was talking about what the karma of assassination and, you know, and this big question that I think a lot of us have. And I think a lot of us would say, yeah, it's worth it. Like take the karma of killing that person if it's going to save millions of lives. But as far as like psychically going in there to change their mind, not from a Buddhist perspective. Not not possible from you know from this Buddhist perspective. I'm trying so hard to do that. Yeah. And it's not possible. Not from there's some who would say it is. I mean, there's all of these things about like the power of prayer. I was with a friend one time, I was called to his deathbed, and it was like he's dying for sure. And I showed up and they had been praying for 36 hours and he came and he survived, came back. And so there's all of these power of prayer of, you know, positive where people say, hey, like it saved my life. It worked. It changed, you know, like it brought people back from death. So I'm, I'm not going to say it's not at all possible, but I'm up here saying like, here's what Theravada and Buddhism teaches. And it doesn't teach that. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. What's it like to be a hundred? Well, I'm finding peace here. That's part of being a hundred. Yeah. And living a peaceful life. Oh, 1922. Yes. Wow. I feel so honored that you came here. I think the whole Sangha feels like what a, a beautiful thing to have you join us for. Everybody at home caught that, but uh, we have a birthday. That's not going to. Russ. Um, couple of announcements on April 16th, Saturday. It's in whatever that is in a month, three, four weeks. I have a day long. 
uh, where we'll take the five precepts, the um, refuges, we'll have lunch together, we'll reflect on our commitment to the path, we'll reaffirm our commitment to the path, we'll have some meditation, sitting, walking. Uh, you're all welcome. You can register on the website against the stream. Uh, .com. Uh, if you want to come and for some reason you can't afford the, the fee to come, uh, just let me know. You're welcome to come on scholarship. You're welcome to show up whether you can afford it or not. If you can afford it, pay. It helps to support the, the center. Um, classes done by donation, by your generosity. The landlord uh, had been giving us a break on rent um, and then raised it and now has re-raised it to the kind of full height. Um, so it's uh, over $1,000 more a month is the rent on the building. So your generosity is especially needed in order to cover the, the costs of having a meditation center and having a meditation center where all are welcome and we're not charging 20 bucks at the door, but everyone can come in. The only way this thing works is if you donate out of the generosity of your heart and you just decide, I want to be part of this thing. I want this thing to be here. Um, and so it's up to you to support it. And as I said, so far, you know, 17 years of people, uh, you know, here on the West side in Los Angeles, supporting against the stream and it continuing. So thank you in advance for your generosity. Thank you for all your past generosity, your future generosity. Um, so you can donate at the desk. There's a bowl for cash. There's a, um, QR code now for, for Venmo. You can also use cards. Tar is there. She can use a card if you want to make a donation with a card. And at home, you need to go through the link in the chat to the um, donation page. Memorial Day retreat is open for registration uh, May, last weekend in May um, 27th, May 27th. There are um, scholarships available, which is, makes it a little less than half price, $300 for the three-day silent retreat instead of $650. Uh, we had a, a gen generous donation from someone in the community to help make scholarships. So uh, register if you're going to come because it'll probably fill up. So get, get registered soon. And then we'll have a seven-day retreat in the fall in October. Three-day in May, seven-day in October. No, one was the one-day? It's September, the day before Easter, the 16th, I think, Saturday, April. April. <laughs> huh? April. April, did I say September? April. There's another one in September, but it's uh, the four, the series of fours, yeah. But you can come to this one April 16th, I think. May any goodness that comes from our practice be gathered and shared outward in all directions may each one of us get as free as possible and together may we create a positive change on this planet thanks for tuning in to the podcast this is noah levine founder of against the stream and refuge recovery if you feel moved to leave a donation there's a link in the show notes